Smaya Monel and Aaron Papworth, founders of the Navit Money app, the money management app that uses behavioral science to foster financial wellness. Thanks for joining us for episode two, of season three of the Navit podcast. On this episode, Aaron and I sit down with assistant professor in the Department of Economics at UC Berkeley, Dr. Supreet Carr. Dr. Carr is a development economist with a focus on behavioral and labor economics. Her work documents frictions in labor markets, the causes of unemployment, and examines the impact of inequality on labor productivity. She also explores how social norms and behavioral biases like self-control problems can affect individual and market behavior. She's among the first to apply psychology to economics to understand why we spend and save the way that we do. Needless to say, you're going to love this episode. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to our show. It's the first guest of season three of the Navit podcast and we're so honored to have you join us. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here with both of you. Oh, well, we can't wait to dive into these topics today. Uh, And as we always do to, to get us started and to kick us off, we'd love to give you a chance to tell our audience a little bit more about your background and and what got you to Berkeley. Yeah, so I uh, so I'm a professor in uh, of economics at Berkeley, and um, you know I I moved to Berkeley four years ago from New York, um, and before that, uh, you know, well before that, I moved um, to the U.S. from India, and my parents, you know, were first generation immigrants. We grew up with not a lot of money and lots and lots of financial constraints. And I think having lived through that experience of growing up without a lot of resources really shaped my desire to want to work on issues around poverty, around how to help people um, who, you know, are very much living the lives I led when I was young, um, you know, manage finances. How do you actually improve your financial situation? It's a really tough thing to do. Um, It's really hard to juggle money when there's so little of it to go around. And I, I, I decided when I was in college that I really wanted to try to pursue a career that could help others improve their their financial situations um, through by applying you know insights from economics and psychology to understandings uh, what what conditions of poverty make it hard to escape poverty your background i feel like is so well suited for the topics that we love to talk about uh, <laughs> here at navin so like i said we just cannot wait to dive in and i want to start off with kind of the burning question, and I know it speaks a lot to some of your current research, but you know we, we hear this a lot. Why do we just all hate to budget and to manage our money? And I think that this might be a great entry point into some of your research. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, who likes to do something that's so miserable, right? <laughs> like it's so miserable to, to, to have to think through and, and you know make all the numbers add up. I don't think math is fun. I don't think managing money is fun. And I think it's definitely not fun when if you don't have a lot of it to, to manage and to think about where mm-hmm. it all go. 
Um, you know, I was, uh, uh, there was this great um, tweet I saw the other day from Mina Harris, and she basically said, you know, I just did something that I procrastinated on for four months, and it took me less than a minute to do, and now I'd like a, a reward a reward for it. Yeah. Like, you know, and I think that kind of sums up what it's like to have to do these kinds of things. Like, these are really important things that we all know we should be doing, and they're, like, super, super important for our financial health. But it's, like, it's super, super unpleasant, and so you put it off, or you kind of have a heuristic that you think you're doing it when you might actually not be you know really sitting down and making yourself budget um, and I think that this is true for lots of things that we do in life where uh, the mental heuristics we might have where we think okay well I have a plan in mind and you know this is kind of how this month is going to go or this is what I'm going to do um, it might actually be really different than if we actually sat down and like made ourselves think through um, exactly where will each dollar, each penny go. But that, that exercise is like really cognitively difficult. It's fatiguing and not pleasant. And so it's not surprising that none of us like to do it. There's a whole background of research on this. Like the, this is not unique to uh, different socioeconomic so, I mean, it's easier when you have more money, right? Because you don't have to deal with the details as much. But I'm curious of like in, in your work with um, lower socioeconomic groups um, or even moderate income groups, is this something that you see it differentiated when you have less or more money? Or is it something that's just a human trait that getting into the weeds like that and especially predicting something you don't have a lot of control of in the future is a painful human endeavor? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's a lot of psychology behind that idea. Um, you know, there's a well-known phenomenon in psychology called the planning fallacy. And the idea of the planning fallacy is really that, uh, you know, we as human beings tend to hold over-optimistic beliefs about how how long things will last. And part of that is, and it comes from, you know, so just to take an example, it's often applied in terms of time effort. So say there's something at work that I always do, like every month I have to write some report. And so then this month, when it's time to write that report, I might think, okay, well, I'm gonna do this in two hours. But if I really stopped and thought about how long that took me every month in the past, it probably would have been like four hours. But somehow I still cling to this belief that this month I'm gonna get it done in this much time because I sort of think that's how long it should take me. And I think the same idea can apply to budgeting and how we think about our consumption plan. So, you know, I might think, okay, well, this month I'm gonna spend this much, I'm gonna, you know, order takeout this many times, I'm gonna have this minute much savings left over at the end of the month. Um, even though maybe every month in the last five months, I haven't managed to do that. I've overshot, but I sort of tell myself, well, that's because this unusual thing happened in the past or, or so on. And so to, then to get yourself to kind of accurately do that this month is difficult, both because it's hard to cognitively think through what are all the little things that could come up and what's the probability of those things coming up. And, you know, what does that mean for what what is likely to be my ultimate budget? But it's also because we don't like to dwell on those negative things that happened in the past. We, we have a tendency to dismiss those negative things in the past as sort of one-off things rather than thinking about them as kind of a, a you know, statistical distribution of this is kind of something that always happens. And so that's how I should, you know, have my expectations. I, the, the way that this applies in my life, not only to my money, but it's to commutes, like to how long <laughs> I think it's going to take to get somewhere. <laughs> I'm always yes, like sliding in. for this. <laughs> I like slide in at the perfect time, but it's always like dicey because there's construction or there's, you know, some yeah. route is, you know, anyways. So yeah. Well, I, I find I the planning fallacy really interesting and I want to dive into this a little bit more 
But the fact that it seems to be a concept rooted in like positive thinking, and yet we always associate budgeting and money management to negative outcomes. I mean, I think, you know, all of us could probably sit here and go over the statistics for days on end on financial stress and the drivers of that and the implications of that and so on and so forth. So like for somebody who did not study psychology ever, (laughs) um, how how do those two things correlate? Like how does kind of this one area of positive thinking really at it at some point lead to negative outcomes and the negative thought and kind of chronic stress over time. Yeah, that's like a, it's a great, um, it's a great question. And so I think that they come from, uh, they're not actually mutually exclusive. I think part of it is there can be a desire to think through your finances because you know it will lead to negative thoughts because it is stressful to think about finances, especially if you don't have like a ton of money. And so that could lead you to avoid actually thinking about your finances for some period of time um, because, you know, until then you really just have no choice. Now the bank balance has become really low. Bills are getting due. So now you really need to take it seriously and think about where every dollar will go. But, you know, when you first get your paycheck and there's just a ton of money in your pocket, um, you sort of feel like you're not that constrained and it's psychologically more pleasant to then not mm-hmm. have to like think about where every dollar will go and to give yourself a little bit of breathing room and to give yourself a little bit of mental relaxation because it's, it's, it is, you know, unpleasant to have to really be thinking about like every minute I have to really, you know, um, make these really, really tough trade-offs and I have to really, really plan every, really, every dollar. That's just not pleasant, I think, for any of us. So I think part of that is part of where the positive thinking comes from is that, or I should rather put it, I think part of where these over-optimistic beliefs come from is that you actually aren't thinking through where every dollar will go. And so you, you can tell yourself, actually, this time will be better. I think that's one part of it is that you don't actually make yourself think through what's going to be, you know, what is every expenditure, where is every dollar going to be spent? Um, And then I think the second part of it is, that um, we, uh, as human beings, even though we are financially stressed, do have this capacity to maintain over-optimism. We do have this capacity to tell ourselves or this propensity to tell ourselves that actually this time I'm going to do okay, this time I'm going to do better than before. And so I think those two things can coexist. You know, to your question of how is it that that people don't actually think, through, like how is it that people can have over-optimism but still have financial stress? I think one other aspect of that is that it is um, really difficult for a person to remember every single expenditure they're going to have coming down the pike. So some of the things that I've seen in my research, for example, is, you know, if you are thinking about, okay, I have, I've just gotten my paycheck. I have, you know, this much money to spend this, these next two weeks. And then I have to think about what do I want to spend on? I'm going to have to think about what are the expenses that I kind of have to make. So I have to make my car payment. I have to make rent payments and so on. But so then if you think through all the things you're going to have to spend on, there's going to be some obvious things like rent, but you might remember your car payment, but you might forget money for gas. You might remember that you have to buy groceries, but you might forget that actually I'm going to have get, get together with my friends on Friday night and there's going to be a few extra drinks that I need to budget for. So if you think through just the sheer magnitude of expenses that we undertake in our day-to-day lives, it's really impossible for anyone to really have them all in mind. And so if you just forget the gas payment, but you remember the car payment, that'll naturally make you think that you actually have more money um, you know, to actually spend than you actually do because you've forgotten that that gas is also a part of your your expenditure needs. 
And so, you know, in my research, we've called this budget neglect, this idea that there are just aspects of your budget that you end up neglecting. And if you have that form of budget neglect, then you're going to feel richer than you actually are. And so then you're going to spend more than you actually do. And you're going to have this over-optimism. It doesn't mean that you're not stressed or you don't realize you have financial constraints, but you can still be feeling over-optimistic about how this month will go. But then, you know, gas is running low on your car and now you have to go to the, the, the gas station and fill up the tank. And now you realize, oh, wow, I'm now like behind where I thought it would be. And now I need to really tighten the belt. And so because those expenditures, even though you've forgotten about them, will come up down the pike and then you're going to have to readjust. And then that can lead to even more stress towards the end of the month and, you know, a tightening of your belt towards the end of the month or the end of the pay cycle. And this brings up two things for me. And one is that natural optimism must be how we have survived as a species. Because if you wallow in the genocide and the violence and the like evil that has occurred throughout human history, like what, if you really sit in it, what motivates you to get up the next day and keep fighting for a better world or have a child to come into this world, right? To the like, what, suffer? <laughs> you know, like what there, it must be, I feel like there is some genetic code that, that, and we talk a lot about resilience in our work, but it's, it is that kind of like, seen both the practicalities of money management or the realities of the stress of the world and the issues that we have, but also having that core genetic push to say, but you can survive and you can overcome. Mm -hmm. Right. That's my first point. And then I want to ask you, what's the solution to this? Yeah, but I, I think that's absolutely true. So there's this, you know, fun, you know, we've all heard these statistics around, you know, 80% of people think they're an above average driver or, you know, like, like everybody thinks that they're above average. And so of course that can't be true. So there is this tendency to kind of view yourself and your situation as, you know, in a rosy light. And I think it's reasonable to think some of that might be, you know, evolutionarily driven. And so, for example, you know, when a woman gives birth, there's like chemicals released into her brain to help her forget about childbirth. So she's going yes. to do it again. Right. And, and that's, the, that's the way that nature tricks us into like, you know, moving forward. Um, but, but I think there's actually like a lot of documentation of this phenomenon, even in psychology. So for example, going back to this, like everyone thinks they're above average, you know, the types of people, like if you look at who actually has accurate beliefs about their ability, those depressed people are more likely to have accurate beliefs where they're, you know, if they're not above average, they're not likely to think they're above average. And so there is something, there's this idea of the psychological immune system where we, you know, kind of have to hold a set of beliefs um, to help us kind of be functional and happy human beings. And th those are really important for our welfare. And so I don't think to your question, we necessarily want to eradicate that optimism. Like if we didn't have that optimism, you know, people like you guys would never st do startups because exactly. Certainly not again. Why would you ever do it? But you, know, you have to believe I will be different. I'm going to be among like the 10% that actually make it, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're saying there's delusional, delusionment, is that a word? <laughs> like this. happy delusion, like really useful, important delusion. <laughs> that create, yeah, that creates innovation. Thank you, yes. <laughs> kind of the theory of, you know, I think of Pandora's box, but hope, right? I mean, like hope is essentially what puts us apart and that's essentially what we're, what we're talking about. And I think this is really interesting and I love the idea of the psychological immune system. So if it's a psychological immune system, is this something that can be fostered and, 
you know, supported uh, so you don't become sickly? And, you know, you, you know, like, how can you how can you kind of train your mind to be more? I think Aaron's right. We're talking about financial resilience and, and resilience yeah. in general. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's absolutely. So I think that there's um, there is a sense in which, you know, building positive self-image, being resilient, having grit, like being able to, you know, um, uh, attribute things that happened, you know, in the past that have made you feel like you're not capable of doing something and, and changing that self-image, I think is like super, super important in believing, you know, I can save, I can sort of achieve these goals. Um, and so I think there, there are, you know, well-documented strategies for how people can do that. And, and it, you know, those are outside the realm of my research, but I, I do think they're super important. I think where they can become, you, you know, uh, liabilities rather than kind of assets is that if it makes, if, if despite your past experience, kind of in the planning fallacy world, despite your past experience, where you know that you haven't managed to get to the savings goal that you had every month, and but then thinking somehow this month will be different. Like I think where you kind of do want to debias people is to say, well, look, we need to take a good look at what's happened in the past and learn from that if you really do want to meet these new goals. Because otherwise, if you don't change your beliefs, you won't be able to change behaviors. And ultimately, if you want a different outcome, you know, you do have to change behaviors. And I think your work in Zambia has really spoken so well to uh, to what we're talking about. So I was hoping you could kind of give the listeners a, a peek into some of the work that you were doing um, and how the I think it sounds like this is relatable to, um, you know, those experiencing, say, variable income back in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, so in Zambia, we've worked with uh, uh, maize farmers um, who have this, you know, very, very regular cycle where they harvest maize once a year, and that's kind of their their annual income, their main annual income, and then they eat that maize down over the course of the year. And so that maize harvest is really like their bank account. They use it for eating food, but then they also use it for buying things like paying school fees and buying clothes and, and so on because you can either sell it or directly trade for it. And so they have this kind of very concrete planning problem where they have all of this maize and then they need to like spend it down. And what invariably happens is that they end up run, starting to run out of maize too soon. And so the last few months of the year before the next harvest are known as the hungry season in Zambia, where people are skipping meals. If you look at, you know, child weight, it really plummets. Like so, so and, um, and so there's these effects on how much people can eat, but also effects on their farm investment because they can't um, then afford to buy things like fertilizer that they need at the time, or they, instead of working on their own land, um, towards their future harvest, they end up instead trying to go and work for somebody else in the labor market so they can raise money so they can go buy maize. But at that time, everybody's buying maize, so the price of maize shoots up in the market. And so it's kind of this really terrible cycle that happens every year. And so when we went and asked farmers right after harvest, you know, okay, so you have this much, this much maize right now. Can you just predict for me how much of this maize will you still have? In other words, predict for me how much savings will you still have three months from now? And what we find is that 80% of people are over-optimistic. 80% of people think they're going to have more maize than they actually do. And we incentivize them in this choice. We said, if you're right, I want you to tell me a real answer. And if you're right, I'm going to come back in three months. I'm going to check and I'm going to give you some money if you were actually right. And so 80% of people ended up predicting something that was um, too optimistic. And then we also asked people at that time, don't just give me your average guess. Tell me the worst case scenario. If 
everything that goes wrong, that possibly could go wrong, actually goes wrong, how much maize will you have left? Be have left? And we go back three months later, 65% of people were more optimistic than their worst case, their, their worst case scenario was too optimistic. Like they actually end up having less maize in their worst case scenario. And so this just sort of documents the, the, the prevalence and, and just the um, you know persistence of these bias beliefs that even though every year you've run out of maize too soon, you somehow feel like this year you're gonna do better. Uh, and that, um, and, and so we then took the lessons from the planning fallacy and we did an intervention in Zambia where we really then sat down with people after harvest and we, you know, gave them, a, we gave them like a planning board, which had kind of the major expense categories that people tend to spend money on. And then we, uh, we, um, gave them like thumbtacks that were equal to the amount of bags of maize they had. And then they have to allocate them to these different categories like consumption and every month and school fees and farm inputs and so on. And what you could see is people would, you know, start going through the board and they'd run out of thumbtacks before they got to the end. And then they'd realize, oh, wow, I thought I could spend, you know, this much on these different things, but I'm not going to have enough money left if I'm actually spending what I thought my spending plan was. And so then they have to revise and it gets them to sort of change their beliefs and really understand what felt like a lot because you see it in the big pile and it's, you know, you feel flush is actually not that much when you start thinking about all the different expenditures coming down the pike. Um, and so we use this intervention to really debias their beliefs to really get them to see that actually you're not going to have as much as you thought because the gas payment is coming. It's not just the car payment you have to make and, and so on. I literally wish that you could that we could do this for every elementary school, like fourth grade, fifth grader, like give them that problem and have them because I mean, it's just retraining, right? Like, I mean, it's just it's it's identifying and you, you actually talked about this before, right? It's like the big picture, you call it the meta person. Maybe you could talk about this dual personality or the dual, dual I think you call it dual self, right? Where they like the big, the big kind of optimistic person and then the actual practical person that does the daily work are kind of dis disconnected. Could you speak a little bit about that? Sure. So the, um, you know, if you think about, uh, it, so there's, this is, a, this is a, an idea that's separate from the planning fallacy idea. And it's often used in, in behavioral economics when we think about things like self-control problems, where there's a sense in which there is, um, you could think of a self-control problem as, you know, having two separate sort of cells. There's a self that I'm going to use a month as a cycle because I think in the U.S. that's more relevant and empirically what we see. So we see this kind of consumption cyclicality in the U.S. at the monthly level. And so if you think about in the U.S., um, you know, in the beginning of the month, you you have this idea of how this month will go and you kind of have a general sense of, okay, I by the end of the month, I want to have, you know, $300 in savings left over and then I'm going to spend on these things and so on. But then the day-to-day -day person isn't thinking, okay, if I spend this $5 on popcorn at the movie theater now, you're not thinking what that means for, you know, every other decision down the pike and how it affects whether I'm going to actually have that $300 in savings at the end of the month. So the day-to-day -day person isn't taking a macro view. You're just taking a view of, okay, well, does it seem reasonable that I spend this way? Because we're human beings. We're not like machines that are, you know, calculating, you know, uh, like taking deductions off a of balance sheet at every minute. Um, and so that day-to-day -day person is kind of going along the path. And then towards the end of the month, when you start seeing the money in your wallet is really very little or your, your savings account is very little, then that $5 on popcorn really starts to be very salient and make a difference. Because now you notice, oh, I only have $100 in my pocket. If I spend $5, 
that's like a really big deal. Whereas when you have $1,000 in your pocket, spending $5 doesn't seem like a big deal. And so that day-to-day -day person is just optimizing or, or making decisions based on just whatever the narrow view they see at the moment. And that's different from how in the beginning of the month that, that kind of meta person was thinking about what do I want my overall month to be like? And, and those are two very different people. And if, if, you know, a lot of, I think, behavioral science interventions are around trying to get those two, that day-to-day that -day person to have the perspective of that meta person, to be able to think about how these little micro decisions feed into kind of your overall meta plan for, for the month. And if you can do that, the idea is that that can help people then actually meet that meta goal that they started with. It's so profound and it makes sense to me now that's like bringing in the self-awareness on a daily basis of what your kind of big meta goals are. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, I mean, you saw really interesting uh, results at the end of your Zambia work. So could you talk about a little bit of what you saw? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, so we did this, um, this planning, uh, this planning intervention and then uh, what we then went back and regularly and we visited people and we actually went and counted up how much maize was left in their house, you know, and, and this was done via a randomized control trial. So there were some households that actually got this intervention and some households that randomly did not get this intervention. So we could really then follow them over time and look at the causal impact of what we did on people's outcomes. And what we found is after we did the planning intervention for the households that received it, their um, consumption dropped by 15%. Their spending dropped by 15% in the early months of the year relative to those who didn't get it. And so as a result of that improved savings, they enter the hungry season with a month more worth of food. And, um, and, and in addition, because they have more money during that time, which is actually an important time for farm investment, they're able to direct more resources into their own farms. So they work more on their own farms instead of selling their labor outside to other people. They're, they're able to buy suggestively like more fertilizer and, and inputs for their land. And so they end the year with 9% higher crop revenue than those who didn't get the intervention. So they have more money and they enter with a bigger pie to start the next year with because their harvest is larger. So we had these really big impacts from just a very simple intervention of just people planning for themselves um, or, or you know, thinking about how to use their own savings over the course of the year. I'm curious too, and maybe this speaks to that 20% that um, either came below what, uh, what they thought their outcome would be, but you know, do you see kind of in your research overall, those who seem to be maybe more, dare I say, practical about their budgeting um, or realistic about their budgeting? Is there mm -hmm. some kind of common thread and, and theme around their upbringing, their kind of overall mental resilience, like what they mm -hmm. look like and how we can maybe even learn from, from them going forward? Yeah, you know, it's hard. So you know, we've looked a little bit to try to figure out what what is the difference that we can discern. And, you know, of course, we don't have perfect data. And if we could have, you know, peered inside of their minds and figured out everything about them, I, I think we might have had a better shot of answering your question. But as far as we can tell, it's hard to say exactly who those 20% are. So, for example, we looked at experience. So, you know, there's people, we do this with the head of the household. So there's some people who are 25 and some people who are 65, right? And so the people who are 65 have gone through this like over and over and over again for decades. And we find the difference in over-optimism is like 5%, like, like really, really tiny. It's like, so maybe there's some benefit of experience and then having run out of food too soon you know, many, many times, but not really. Uh, and so it, it's hard to say what that difference is. Um, 
but it but it, it is um but it is you know clear that there's a lot of things that we might have thought mattered don't matter right you know and so there's a lot of things where we can say that it is not this this other thing like experience and i think for me what that speaks to is that this really is just a feature of the human condition like we as human beings really have this like proclivity to just be over optimistic and think this time will be different um even you know even though uh we, we we, we, we one would think we would we would have been able to incorporate information from the past into our future plans. Um, and I think people in our intervention realized the benefits of this planning intervention. So when we went back um, to them the year after and said, hey, would you like us to do this thing with you again? 90% of people who got it the first time were actually willing to pay us to do it with them a second time. And that tells us, I think, two things. The first is that after you go through it, you see that if I budget in this different way, if I apply this new tool or framework to help me think through how to make my financial plan, people can see the value in it and, and want to keep, you know, keep doing it. The second thing I think it tells me is that it's hard to do it on your own. Like it's not reasonable to think you can do it on your own because even once you've learned it, you've done it with us, you could replicate it on your own. But I think people are wise in understanding that as human beings, it's hard for us to do it on your own. And this is why you need things like a financial planning app or, you know, or, an, or financial advisor or other sort of tools to help you navigate just the cognitive challenges and the behavioral challenges of, of planning and budgeting. Well, we really hope that that's the case. And we're really excited to see how, frankly, your research unfolds into our work and, and kind of in our industry more broadly. And that, that kind of begs maybe my last question is how do you hope this research will start to inform you know, a global perspective on money management and uh, consumer outcomes and, and frankly, financial opportunity. Yeah, so I think that, you know, I hope it will engender much more empathy than I think exists right now in just how difficult it is to manage your financial life. I think right now, you know, we all have known and seen a lot of statistics around how, you know, 40% of Americans can't come up with $400 in an emergency because, you know, they don't hold savings and you look at somebody who might be living paycheck to paycheck. And, and I think there's a sense in which people feel like, oh, that is not right behavior. That is, you know, really irresponsible behavior or so on. And, you know, while, while one can have those kinds of judgments, you, you have to put them into perspective of what it's like to live that life and what it's like to go through that process. And we are human beings. And so if you are making, you know, $300,000 a year, it's it, your your ability to budget or what that financial, um, like the process of budgeting and what that means and what that looks like for you and how easy it is to save is just like fundamentally different than somebody who makes $60,000 a year. And I think what I'm hoping is through my research, we can both understand better um, just from a, 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 a academic insights perspective on what are the specific psychological difficulties and hurdles that we as human beings have in managing tight budgets and why that can lead to outcomes like people not being able to meet their own savings goals. And then once we understand those insights, um, I hope it can lead to interventions like what we're doing in Zambia um, to actually help people meet the, the savings goals that they have for themselves. And I, so I love, I mean, we're getting up to time, but I love that um, you come at it first from this like human essentially psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. And then you start to think about banking services mm -hmm. because we do that, like this is kind of our approach. And I think we have, um, we're creating a lot of innovation in the FinTech space because 
historically financial services or fintech, tech, you know, financial technologies have come always at reduction of poverty, you know, let's eliminate the wealth gap, et cetera, from a product perspective. So they say, okay, we're going to get you a, you know, zero APR credit card for 18 months, or we're going to get you a no overdraft fees, mm -hmm. checking account, et cetera. And I think what where we have always come from was a place of that's great. And so you are, you know, changing the narrative, right? You are reducing the cost of banking services. And I'm very grateful for the people that have come before us in the last 10 years that have been able to do that. But you're still not getting to the heart of the relationship the individual has with the, that bank account and the relationship that person has with their money and the, all these kind of triggers that you're talking about throughout their month and throughout their the management of their their financial lives and so we believe that there's this like you must have both the intersection of financial health is healthy financial products and access to those products that are not exploitative or not you know making money just to make money off of people and also the psychological relationship that the end consumer has with it and the understanding of why that product is interesting for them or why that product affects their financial certain life and how they are relating to their money management and that psychology. So I'm interested, you know, in your perspective there on the banking side, as much as the psychological side and where you see, especially for the income bracket that you're looking at, um, what you've seen work. Yeah, so I think that um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that banking view is informed is, is, is I agree, super important, like those kinds of products are super important. I think that view is informed very much by how economists also tend to think about, um, you know, things like how you plan and budget and manage and or manage things like volatility in your life. I think we tend to see this as just a money management problem. This is just, you know, if you have, you know, you could have shocks and, and you look at a health expenditure, you could have like, you know, your number of shifts like at work could get reduced. And, and so hours are uncertain. And but all of these things are just a money management problem. And so we just sort of tend to think, OK, well, people will take all this information. They'll kind of shuffle their, the pieces of their financial lives around and, and you know, put money where they'll have the highest return or, or, or take the loan that has the lowest interest rate. And so if you can get people a loan with a lower interest rate, great. That's like the best way to help them because they can deal with the juggling on their own because it tends to presume that the cognitive cost of engaging in planning, the psychological experience of like managing money under constraints is kind of not relevant. It's just about like optimizing and we're, we're good optimizers. I think where, and while that's of course really true, I think where psychology can really help and behavioral science can really help is to say, you can have those tools there, but it's not reasonable to expect a human being to be able to perfectly do those things on their own. And so thinking about, you know, when you think about then what is the most effective design for a product, like if you think about what we've done in Zambia, it wasn't to inject something new in terms of like something that gave people money or reduced the interest rate on a loan. Like there was no banking product that we offered. It was literally about helping them manage internally their own, um, you know, beliefs and like process for engaging in planning. And so I think once you can understand what are the psychological limitations as human beings that we have and cognitive limitations we have as human beings that actually suggests things that can be quite effective and super cheap in terms of 
you know, things that can then help people navigate choices. And behavioral science is called choice architecture. Basically, you know, it's not enough to have those choices there. The framework and the architecture that the human interfaces with to make those choices is like super, super important. And I think that's kind of the the where the missing gap is um, and where uh, approaches like the one that you guys are undertaking can really then help people navigate. What I love so much about that is that you take out the judgment to some degree, like you, you come from an empathetic place of like humans are flawed <laughs> and it's okay that we need help. Right. And that, and you can take, I, I feel like it eliminates a lot of the judgment that people have of like, Oh, poor people should just do this. Like, why can't they just figure this out? Right. Like I, I love it. So Maya, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, we're so excited as I mentioned before, to see where your research goes and how it starts to inform our own processes. And, and Supri, we're just so grateful to have you join us on this episode and one of our firsts of season three. So thank you again. We cannot let you leave without answering our kind of rapid fire round, which we always get to when we have guests on the show. These you know rounds are kind of quick and compelling, just like signing up for Navit in your app store. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and do that to everybody listening. Uh, and I want to start it off with maybe Aaron and I's favorite. What money stereotypes do you think society must overcome? So that saving, that the inability to save or people who don't manage to build up savings are somehow just being reckless or irresponsible. I think that's unfair and ignores like the fundamental challenges and the psychology that anyone who's living under constraints would face. And I think that if a rich person was in the, in the same shoes as like the average poor person, I, I think that their behavior would likely be exactly the same. Yes. Secondly, how do you define a healthy money mindset? So I think a healthy money mindset is one in which you, um, uh, you know, understand that that things are going to happen in life, volatility is going to happen in life, that there's only so much you have control over, but kind of being super disciplined and realistic and saying, I'm going to set a realistic goal and then I'm going to find ways that are kind of don't demand too much of me, but that are, 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 but are feasible. And I'm going to create ways to make it feasible for me to actually then adhere to that goal. And I'm going to use the tricks and tools like, putting money in a locked box under, you know, my mattress and then never and pretending like it doesn't exist because that's what I need to do to get me to like have those, you know, $200 at the end of the month. Um, and, and really, really appreciating that even if it's a little bit at a time, that's kind of how savings gets built up. It's brilliant. I love it. And lastly, when was the last time you nabbed something and how did you do it? Well, so I recently, um, had to, uh, we recently buy, bought a house and, and I'll be really honest, um, you know, I guess it wasn't that recent now. And I'll be honest, the way we navigated it is with the help of a, of, of a financial advisor, because I think the process of how overwhelming it was made me realize it would be ridiculous for me to try to do it on my own. And so we used our, uh, you know, financial advisors to help us navigate that process, figure out what was the best loan we could get, what is a reasonable mortgage, what does that structure look like? And that gave me a lot of peace of mind. And I can't imagine having to do that without the help. You know, everybody needs some help. And just like I said before, we love talking to you and getting the help of professionals and, and professors like yourself who are doing such great work in our space. So Dr. Supreet Kaur, thank you so much for joining Aaron and I for one of the first episodes of season three of the Navit podcast. We wish you well, and we look forward to working with you again soon.
Thank you. Me too. I'm really excited to engage with you guys and 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 work uh, work on the app together. Truly, you, you make so us much. feel like we we actually are onto something. So thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you again soon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Care to continue the convo? You can connect with fellow navigators in the app or on our Let's Navit Facebook page. Oh, and be sure to get social with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Let's Navit. That's L-E-T-S-N-A-V-I-T. And finally, wherever you're listening to this podcast, it would really help us if you would take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. That's it for today's episode. Until next time. Let's Let's nab it. it!